We turn this evening to Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, which reads, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This evening we are considering what is a remarkable and staggering statement in this verse. It contains truths which are deeper than any ocean in the world. And it would take eternity for the church to explore the depths of what Paul is describing in verse 32. And I'm just a, a poor, humble, ordinary preacher, and I can only paddle uh, on the edges of this ocean, but may God by the Spirit help us to see something of the vastness and the, the depth of the Lord's love and purpose for his people. But in looking at verse 32, we need to step back just a little in the immediate context and zoom in on the theme of God's great purpose for his people, which is summarized in verses 828 to 31. And those verses form an essential background to verse 32 in our text. And they highlight even more this message, uh, which we shall look at briefly. Now, many of you are familiar with verse 28. We often read it, we often hear it preached possibly, and we often refer to it in our conversation, especially when we're going through difficulties and we're able to recognize at times that God has a good purpose. But this verse is telling us that when bad or good things happen to Christians, God is working all circumstances and all problems for our good. He does not necessarily remove the problem or the circumstance, but he will always use bad and good things for our ultimate good. And that good means becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is stated clearly in verse 29. So when bad things happen, therefore, or when we are afraid they may happen to us, we can be assured that God is in control and he has a good purpose for us. And if you're a Christian this evening, I ask whether you really believe the Lord can be trusted and that the Lord is working his purpose out in your life to ensure that, that, that his good purpose will be achieved for you. Now, the Bible has lots of illustrations. I don't have time to refer to, 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 to them. But Joseph in the Old Testament was cruelly treated by his brothers, sold as a slave eventually, then in Egypt, lied about, and then in prison for 17 years. And some people would have said, well, what a waste of time to be in prison for, for all those years. But God was with him and God blessed him. God prepared him. And God used it for good to rescue a people. Or Job losing his children and then having an illness and in darkness searching for God. Or Paul in prison in Rome in his last days. And yet, though he was imprisoned, the guards, the soldiers in the palace, people in Rome 
even the Christians became more bold and more and more people heard about the gospel. So all things work together for good, whether good or bad. And as believers, we must accept this and trust him. But verses 29 to 30, Paul reinforces God's great purpose for Christians. He identifies five major aspects and he uses five important verbs. These verbs form a chain. It's been described as a golden chain or a salvation chain. And there are five links in this chain which can never be broken. They can never be changed by anyone. Now, first link in the chain is that God foreknew. That is, before we trusted Christ, before you heard the gospel, before you were born, before even Christ died on the cross, for us before creation even god knew you he chose and actively delighted in you you became the object of his care and his love and he included you in his purpose of salvation salvation begins with god and uh, if you are a christian this evening uh, you can see here again the reminder of god's love even from eternity. But the second link in the chain is that God also predestined. Don't be afraid of the word. God's purpose to save us here is specific, to be conformed to the image of his son. Each Christian, no matter who we are or where we are, each Christian should become more like the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives day by day in our thinking, in our speaking, in our reactions even, in our desires, in our behavior, in our relationships, whether in work or at home with a family or in school or college or in society or in the church. God's purpose for us is that we should become more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call sanctification. No Christian is excluded. And that's a tremendous challenge. But this is God's purpose for his people. And one day it will be true. When the believer dies, he enters without sin into the presence of the Lord. But the process begins from our conversion. And it is to continue. I wonder if this is true of you as a believer. Are you living and behaving more like? the Lord Jesus Christ. And God uses circumstances, problems, difficulties in our lives, different situations to make us trust him more, to make us desire him more, and often to enjoy him and to know him in ways we did not know him before. But again, another link is that those whom he predestined, these he also called. Now, no one can be like the Lord Jesus Christ unless he or she is converted. And God calls everyone in the gospel to become a Christian. This is what we call the, the general call of the gospel. And so when the gospel is preached, wherever it is, God is, is proclaimed, the holy God, the powerful, sovereign God, God who is righteous, who keeps to his standards, 
the God who hates sin, who is angry with sin, the God who will punish sin, the fact of our own sin, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are guilty before God. We deserve to be punished by God. So our plight is desperately serious. And to die without Christ and faith in him is disaster. But God has provided a mediator, a savior, a deliverer who died on the cross for our sin. But many people hearing this gospel will not respond. Maybe someone listening this evening is just like that. You are not a believer. You're not interested. You, you want to put to one side what the preacher is saying. And you leave this service untouched. It has no effect on you. But if that is you, just beware. Because to die without Christ will be disaster. The wages of sin is death and eternal death. But Paul is referring here to the effectual call. And it happens in all kinds of circumstances. It happens in church service. People can be worshipping and hearing the gospel preached. And there and then in the service under the gospel, someone is saved. Their eyes are open. They're convicted. They trust in Christ. They recognize their sin, their need. And there are many stories of people under the gospel message being saved. I remember uh, a, a married couple with, with three young children walking into a church uh, one Sunday evening. They've been seeking God for, for some time, disillusioned with, with churches and chapels. And in the gospel message, their eyes were opened. They were born again. They were convicted of sin. And uh, before the end of the service, they trusted in Christ. They'd come in as unbelievers, but they went out as new persons in Christ. That is the effectual call. God using his power, sending his Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to give a new nature, new life, new desires, and bringing us effectually to trust in Christ and to have an intimate spiritual relationship with him. That is the call and God's purpose is to call effectually all those he's foreknown and predestined. And God is doing that in our own situation today. Even during this pandemic, people are hearing the gospel for the first time. And we need to pray that God will, will call them effectively to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember many of our church members, the, the, the conversion of Baskarao from our own church and how uh, in India he was brought up as a strict uh, Hindu uh, and yet he was disillusioned with that religion and uh, you may remember how at the age of 18 so disillusioned uh, he was deciding to commit suicide yet walking through the streets of Madras he, he heard the words of John 3.16 God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then he heard the words of Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And those words you will have were used by God to speak to him. And he was called effectually, powerfully to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The next link in this chain 
is that these he calls, he also justified. It's a, it's a big word. It's, it's an important word. It means that God, the righteous, holy God, declares a believing sinner right before him. He says we're not guilty because Christ took our sins upon himself and the obedience, righteousness of Christ has been reckoned to my account. And so I'm not guilty. There's no condemnation. God justifies those who believe upon his son. This is exciting for a sinner. And if there are unbelievers listening to me this evening, I urge you to, to come, to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, because this holy God will justify, will pronounce you not guilty of your sin, and he will reckon to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. He justifies. But finally, the link in the chain is that he also glorified. The past tense is used here as if it's already happened. But one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return personally and in glory. And one of the great things he will accomplish when he returns is that the bodies of believers will be raised and they'll be glorified, made like unto the glorious body of Christ. And the church will be gathered together, saved from, from sin. And we shall be like the Lord Jesus and we shall be evermore with our Lord. That's ahead of us. And God's purpose from beginning to end is that he should save us and glorify us. And if you are a Christian this evening, you are privileged to be within this saving purpose of God. Now, these links in the chain cannot be broken by anyone. So in verse 31, the apostle celebrates the fact in what really is a song of triumph. What then shall we say to these things? That is all that Paul has written in chapters 1 to 8. And now summarized in verses 28 to 30, what shall we say to these things? The Apostle Paul is speechless. He can't get over the, 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 the amazing truths here. And so he asks another rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, God is against the unbeliever. Make no doubt about it. And if you are not a Christian, God is against you. You are an enemy of God. You rebel against him. You reject his authority. You will not obey his command. You will not obey his command to repent and to believe. And God is at war with you. And God will punish you. But for the Christian, that is not true. Because we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, God is for us. Now, people may be against a Christian, maybe a friend, maybe a family on occasions, maybe those we study with in school or in college, maybe colleagues in work or neighbours or in society generally. People may oppose us, they may do bad things to us. But God is not against the Christian. He will never be against any person who believes and trusts 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is against the Christian and against the church. And he wants to do his, his worst to upset us and, and, and to trap us and tempt us and to spoil our testimony. But God is on the side of the Christian. And so victory is guaranteed. So Paul is rejoicing here. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can defeat the Christian. No Christian can ever be lost, no matter how weak we may feel we are and how prone to wander. And so the apostle rejoices and, and he continues in verses 32 to 34 to emphasize that it's impossible for God to reject or neglect a Christian. God will take care of his people and bless them. Then in verses 35 to 39, he reassures us again that no one can separate a Christian from God's love in Christ Jesus. So if God is for us, who can be against us? No one, says the apostle. The Christian is secure in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will reach heaven at last and be part of God's glorious purpose eternally. Now, the Christian clearly is privileged. And therefore, in verse 32, Paul has his third rhetorical question, which is going to remind us again how privileged we are as believers. I want to share just three points briefly with you and as simply as I possibly can this evening. Notice what the, the verse states. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The first thing to notice is father, the father's precious gift to his people. Underline those, those words and the phrase, his own son. Ponder them a moment. His own son, of course, refers to the only and the unique son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us of the blessed Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, distinct persons, yet one God, and the three persons being perfectly united, loving each other in perfect harmony from eternity. And it's his own son that the father spared not. Now, some of you listening to me may, may know the story of Hudson Taylor, the missionary who went to China and uh, established the China Inland Mission. He first went to China in September 1853, and he sailed from Liverpool. Hudson had a, a deep love for the Lord, and he had a, an overwhelming burden to share the gospel with people in China. His parents, living in, in the north of England, they accompanied him to Liverpool. But due to the, the bad weather conditions, the departure of the ship was delayed for about three days. His father had to return home for work and 
to care for the rest of the family. But his mother stayed with, with Hudson till the, the, the ship left. And Hudson Taylor describes it was quite a tense and emotional time for mother and son, though they were delighted to be together. His mum went on board a couple of times and saw his tiny cabin and the, the small bed he had. And uh, Hudson refers to the way in which he would, she would just uh, tidy it up if, if that was at all possible. But near the time of departure, they committed each other to the Lord. And his mother was crying deeply and hardly able to control herself. And Hudson told her, Mother, don't grieve, don't be sad. And he quoted the words of the Lord Jesus in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Then finally, a parting embrace and, and a prayer. And Hudson jumped aboard the ship. But he saw his mother crying and shaking with, with, with tears. And so he jumped off the boat again quickly, even though it was moving very slowly. And he embraced his mother once again and kissed her and dashed back onto the ship. And later he wrote in his diary, I shall never forget the cry of anguish coming from my mother's heart. It went through me like a knife. I never knew fully till that moment what John 3.16 meant, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And Hudson Taylor saw not just his mother's love for him, but saw something more of the father's love for his own son. No earthly mother, no earthly father, no earthly person loves and gives like God the father. And so Paul is reminding us that he spared not his own son father and son in this unique relationship within the godhead with the holy spirit one godhead father son spirit co-equal co-eternal there's no inferiority there and from eternity they've loved one another they've been together the lord jesus was not an angel he was not a a great prophet but he is the eternal son of God, an intimate relationship with his father. And we need to grasp the point that the father spared not his own son. The hymn writers have got it right, or at least some of them have. One writes, a Welsh hymn writer, mighty Christ from time eternal. That's who he is. Great my Jesus in his person, great as God, and man is he. Or a hymn we're going to sing after this message, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. 
So a lot of emphasis amongst Christians today about the Lord Jesus, rightly so. And in evangelism, we talk about knowing Jesus. But my friends, God is Trinity. The Father is involved heavily and completely in loving us with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. And so in the baptism of our Lord Jesus, as he began his ministry, the Father declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In his transfiguration, the Father again speaks, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. And Peter wants to make three tabernacles, one for Moses and Elijah, whom he saw with the Lord Jesus, and, and the clouds come down. Peter hadn't recognized how great the Lord Jesus was. And in his high priestly prayer, our Lord prays, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. Eternally the Son of God, precious to the Father, but the Father spared him not. The Father loves deeply and gloriously. He could give no greater gift. There's no gift more precious than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we notice, first of all, the Father's precious gift to his people, his own son. Secondly, notice the, the father's sacrificial love for us. The verse tells us that he did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that there's an echo here of Abram in the Old Testament scripture. An occasion when God tested the, the faith and the obedience of, of Abram. And God often tests a Christian in his life, whether we actually trust him, and whether we will honor him. But this was a particularly difficult testing because God asked Abram to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, probably about nine or ten years of age at this time. The son of promise, he'd waited many years for Isaac to be born. And so Abram obeyed. It was a three-day journey. God had told him where to go, to the land and the mountain of Moriah. And on the third day, they, they saw the, the land and the mountain. And as he went to the boy and the two young servants, the supplies of wood for the burnt sacrifice, there must have been a tremendous strain and conflict in the mind of Abram. Yet he trusted. And then at the bottom of the mountain, he left the, the two servants behind with the donkey and walked with, with, with Isaac. Eventually, he prepared the, the altar, the wood, the fire. Remember how Isaac asked, uh, where is the sacrifice? And Abram said that God will prepare, provide one. And then, in that chilling moment, Abram took Isaac, his own son, bound him to the altar. And when he was ready to bring his arm down with a knife 
to kill his own son. Then the angel of the Lord called from heaven, Abram, Abram, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Don't do it, Abram. I've only tested your faith. Don't do anything to Isaac, your son. That's the background, possibly. But what did God the Father do? Do you recall the events in Gethsemane when our Lord had been praying privately, the disciples nearby, for the cup of suffering, the cup of wrath, which he would drink on the cross, being punished for our sin, wanting that to be taken away. And yet, said the Lord Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. And then Judas came with the temple police and the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders, and they arrested him. The father could have stopped it all. Even the Lord Jesus tells his disciple that if he wanted, he could call for legions of angels. He wasn't helpless. At the trial of the Lord Jesus, God the Father could have stopped it. The sentence which Pilate unwillingly announced. And even on the cross, as the Lord Jesus was nailed there. Unlike Abram, God the Father brought his knife down on his own son. And not just the physical suffering. But spiritually, emotionally, there on the cross, the Lord Jesus was smitten of God, afflicted. It pleased the Lord to lay on his own son the iniquity of us all. He spared him not. Then Paul goes on to tell us, but he delivered him up for us all. The verb is used often in the New Testament, and it's, it's used in relation to Judas Iscariot, who delivered up Jesus in the garden to the police and to the religious leaders, handed him over. The chief priests and the elders also delivered Jesus to Pilate, the governor. And Pilate, to gratify the crowd, and he was a coward, he had tried to have Barabbas punished instead of the Lord Jesus, but the people demanded that Barabbas should be released. And so Pilate, the governor, released or delivered Jesus after he had scourged him. And he was to be crucified. In Acts chapter 3, Peter reminds his congregation, the people delivered him up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. The people themselves delivered him. But behind the scene is God, the triune God, God the Father. God the Father delivered him up. 
in his love for sinners, for the church. There is no reduction of the sentence on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sentence that we deserve, which is eternal punishment in hell. No reduction for the good behavior of the Lord Jesus. He was perfect. He was sinless. He had never committed any offense. He had fulfilled God's law perfectly. But no reduction in the punishment, even for the Son of God. He was being punished in our place. And he was delivered for us all, for all whom God foreknew and predestined and justified and called. And he suffers the divine wrath due to us. And the Father delivered him up to that dreadful, awful punishment of wrath. Hell was let loose. And the infinite punishment upon sin due to us was suffered and endured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father delivered the Lord even to the devil his hosts. This is your hour, says the Lord Jesus, and the power of darkness. The Father spared him not, but delivered him up for us all. Believers, those whom God has chosen, placed in Christ. Do you recognize this as a Christian? Have you seen the supreme act and expression of love? Can you see that God has done this for you? God the Father sacrificed, spared not his son, that the Lord Jesus Christ lovingly and willingly endured the punishment in our place for us all. And if you are not a Christian this evening, I challenge you. Can you see what happened on the cross? Do you recognize your, your need of God being on your side? God is holy. God hates your sin. God will punish your sin. Hell awaits unbelievers when they die eternally. There's no escape from it. God is against you if you are an unbeliever. But God invites you to, to believe upon him. He tells you the gospel, look, I've spared not my son. I delivered him up for my people, for the sin of my people. Don't make an excuse that you're not sure that God wants you. Or you doubt whether God has predestined you. God says, if anyone will come to me, I will receive. I will not turn anyone away. God commands you to repent and to believe upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us all as his people. The father's precious gift, his own son. His sacrificial love, sparing him not, but delivering him up to take our punishment, our guilt, in order that we might be right with God and know God and enjoy God and be in heaven for eternity. Such is the vastness of the, the love of God.
But thirdly and finally notice the father's unlimited generosity. Notice how the verse ends. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Notice, how shall he not with him, that's the Lord Jesus, freely give us all things? In other words, having given us the greatest of all gifts, namely his own son, he will not hesitate to to give freely all that the Christian needs to live in this world. All that we need to live the Christian life, all that we need to, to know him and to serve him, to enjoy him. All that is needed is provided for us in Christ. And there will be no end to the generosity of God in this life for the believer. God is not mean. He loves to give and to give and to give to his people. And he will go on giving until we reach heaven. But remember, believer, he gives us only in Christ and with Christ. And our union with Christ guarantees that he will not withhold any good thing from us. So all his gifts to us, all the blessings and all the graces we need come to us in Christ because of him and in him. And I ask you again, as you listen to me preaching tonight, are you in Christ? Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps some of you are very needy this, this evening listening to the message. Perhaps you may be struggling as a Christian. You feel you perhaps can't go on much longer. Life may be very hard for you. Perhaps you're thinking that God is hard, that God has forgotten you. Some of you may be blaming God for not answering some of your prayers, but God has let you down. Some people point a finger at God. They blame him. They imagine he's not done what they wanted. If that's you, I urge you to repent of such blasphemous and evil thoughts. And such thoughts come from the devil. God the Father loves his people. He loves them infinitely, sacrificially. And he will not withhold any good gift from his people. He will never, never, never fail to provide for believers. So whatever your need, God is and always will be generous and kind. You can trust him. He may not give you what you want. And he may not give you what you want when you want or how you want it. But he will provide for you. And you can trust him. You can ask him. And you need to be believing. Put away any unbelieving and bitter, angry thoughts about God the Father. See something of his generosity and kindness towards his people. He will not withhold any good thing from 
his people freely give us all things. Some of the hymn writers express it well. One hymn, if we were meeting in church this evening, I would have chosen, would be the well-known 801 hymn, He Giveth More Grace. Many of you are familiar with the words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. And there are periods in our lives when burdens become heavy and heavier. It's difficult to cope. But in those situations, he gives more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hymn writer says, well, he sends more strength when the labours increase. And sometimes there are heavy demands on our time and our work, our service. But he sends more strength in our weakness, in our helplessness. He, he will strengthen to added affliction. And there are many suffering and suffering in all kinds of ways. But to added affliction, he adds his mercy. He's tender, he's gracious, he's merciful in our affliction and to multiply trials and some Christians and some families seem to have loads and loads of trials all the time. Yet to multiply trials, his multiplied peace. Have you noticed the peace which some Christians have in very difficult situations? It's God's peace. God has been kind and gracious to them. His love has no limits, says the hymn writer. His grace has no measure. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Is that your experience as a Christian? If not, make it real in your life. He's working all things for good. Bad things and good things. Situations in which you, you, you fear. He's working all things for good. To make you more like the Lord Jesus. To, to lead you to know him better. To enjoy him. He wants you to be obedient to him. Or think of the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6. In the Sermon on the Mount. Take no wedding thought, he says. It's a command, not an invitation. Stop worrying, he says. Stop worrying about food. No need for panic buying. Clothes. And now Lord talks about the, the flowers of the field and the grass, the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father knows what you have need of, he says. He feeds the birds. He clothes the grass and the flowers. How much more valuable are you, oh, of little faith? But if you want to be concerned, be concerned in this way. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is your priority. Put Christ first. Then all these other things will be added and provided. And God is using circumstances sometimes to enable us to put our priorities right. Well, let me refer quickly to Thomas Charles of Banner. In December 1799, he 
was on a preaching tour in northwest Wales. He'd been to the Llyn Peninsula and to Anglesey, and he was back in Carnarvon. And when he got there, there was a messenger telling him that uh, his uh, adopted nephew was critically ill, would possibly die, and he needed to get, get back to Balder as quickly as possible. It was bitterly cold, snow on the ground, it was frosty. In a car, you can make the journey from Carnarvon to Bala. Well, possibly an hour and a half, perhaps a bit longer, a bit less for, for some of the fast drivers. But he had his, his own horse, and uh, it was a much longer journey for him. Mountainous terrain, bitterly cold wind, and holding the reins of his horse for hours, uh, he suffered uh, frostbite in the thumb on his left hand. By the time he got to Bala, he was in considerable pain. His nephew did die, but he was a believer. And over the following days and weeks and months, he was in excruciating pain with his thumb. And then there was the infection. And that there was fear that Thomas Charles would not live. And Christians began to pray, and there was a, a prayer meeting in his home the night before the doctors decided they would amputate his thumb in Chester. And one of the deacons in the fellowship in Bala prayed, prayed fervently, uh, ex explaining how the churches needed Thomas Charles, and remembering Hezekiah being allowed to live for another 15 years. He asked that Thomas Charles would have that same privilege. And the prayer meeting agreed. They were convinced that God had answered. And so he lived 15 years. The amputation took place. He was still critically ill. But pre-amputation, following months after amputation in his recovery, there was no self-pity. He knew the Lord's presence and grace. Notice what he says, I have daily proofs of the Lord's faithfulness, fulfilling his promises. When he recognized how seriously ill he was and he could die, Charles says, I have such glorious views of God himself, produce comfort, calmness, joyful resignation of, to his will. I've never had such views of the Lord before. I, I've seen him in the word wonderfully, but in my illness, I've seen him more clearly. An amazing sight by faith, a crucified saviour, conquered all the rebellions of my will, banished my fears. I couldn't help loving him, enjoying him, rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Here is God the Father loving his child in his pain and misery, sparing his life longer. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Christian friends, the Lord is working for good in your life to bring you to know and to enjoy and to trust him. And this is what Thomas Charles found. It's what many other Christians are finding. Whatever your need, he is generous. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will guide you. And our Lord reminds us in Luke eleven thirteen that being evil as fathers, we can give 
good gifts to our children. But how much more? Notice how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Maybe you're lacking assurance. You're plagued with doubts. Ask the father. Ask him to give you more of his spirit, to, to give you assurance, to strengthen your faith, to make himself more real to you. He's done this often, met with individual Christians and met with the church. And we need to know this glorious God again afresh. And so I commend him to you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Amen.